Chapter Sixteen of The Curious Quest by E. Phillips Oppenheim. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Sixteen. I have come to the conclusion, Francis declared, that you are an unlucky person. Just at present, Bliss replied with a smile, I am not prepared to admit anything of the sort. They were seated side by side a few evenings later in the little restaurant near Drury Lane. Frances frowned upon her companion severely. "'I don't see how you can deny it,' she insisted. "'You could have had a partnership with Mr. Masters, but for your silly rich friend, who would only help you under such absurd conditions. Then you went out and engaged yourself to that cranky old lunatic, Mr. Cockrell, who, of course, sent you away when you interfered with his amusements. Afterwards you admit yourself that you could have stayed on with the greengrocer lady down in Poplar, only that her husband came back unexpectedly. That's three places, isn't it? And now you find another position with the Sun Motor Company, which really ought to suit you, and you lose it, as I think most unjustly. I'm going to give you one more chance. She unfastened a little black pig from her bracelet and pushed it across the tablecloth towards him. There, she said, keep that in some place where you can't lose it. He stowed it away in his waistcoat pocket. That's enough about my affairs, he remarked. It seems to me that yours want looking into— you admit that you are not very comfortable in your present situation, and you were treated like a queen at Mr. Masters. "'We all have our troubles, I suppose,' she sighed. "'No, I will not take coffee to-night, thank you. You know very well that neither you nor I can afford it.' He paid the bill resignedly, and they left the place. "'This,' she declared, "'is to be our last extravagant evening.' Until you get a post, I will not have you spend another penny upon me. The bill for our two dinners, he protested, was two and fourpence. That isn't the point. How much have you left exactly? He counted out his money as they strolled along. Eleven and a penny, and my room is paid up for to next Saturday. To next Saturday, indeed, she repeated indignantly. Do you imagine that you're going to walk into a situation just when you want it? I think it is positively wicked of you never to have saved anything. Tell me why you haven't. I really don't know, he admitted. I—you see, I never had any incentive. Under the circumstances, she said, I don't think that we should take that bus ride. Well, we're going to anyway, he insisted. You promised that when you wouldn't let me order the bottle of Medoc for dinner. Along Piccadilly, I think, where we can see the smart people. And a horse-bus. We shall get more for our money. Come along. We can get the front seat of this one. They climbed on to the top of an omnibus that was making its way westward along the Strand. A late spring had suddenly transformed the city, whose streets, only the week before, seemed to have been the meeting-place of winds from all quarters of the globe, winds which brought them long spells of cold and gusty rain. Now everything was changed. The sky above was blue, 
Flower-sellers were at every street-corner. Light frocks and flower-adorned millinery, even a few straw hats among the men, were like a presage of the coming summer. The air was soft, almost languid. Down by the park the trees seemed already to have put forth their fullest and deepest green. Every now and then a little wave of perfume came to them from the flower-boxes, and above their heads the stars were creeping into the sky. France's eyes were fixed, a little sadly, upon the constant stream of vehicles filled with men and women in evening dress. They passed a brilliantly lit restaurant, where they caught a momentary vista of little parties of men and women dining together, surrounded by all the soft splendour of the modern restaurant de luxe. She gripped suddenly at her companion's arm. Her face had hardened. "'What have they done, these people, to deserve a life like that?' she demanded, almost fiercely. The question took him a little aback. He looked at her curiously. It was so seldom that she betrayed any such feeling. "'I suppose the women,' he replied, "'have married the right men, and the men have chosen their fathers wisely, have bought the right stocks, or backed the right horses. It's rather a lottery, life, isn't it?' "'It's worse than a lottery. It's a gamble!' she exclaimed passionately. "'The whole thing isn't fair. There isn't any justice about it. Look at me!' He nodded appreciatively. "'I like to,' he assured her. "'I don't believe there is any one better worth looking at in all that restaurant.' Even the compliment failed to touch her. It seemed indeed to have aroused a momentary indignation. "'You are absurd,' she protested. "'My clothes are ready-made and shoddy. I trimmed my hat myself with cheap artificial flowers. My boots are ugly.' I have scarcely ever worn silk stockings in my life, and I love them. I love all pretty things. I can't afford to feel nice or to look nice, and yet I have worked hard all my life, and I have been good. Just fancy, only one life, and never able to do more than peer over the fence into that world of luxury." "'One can never tell,' he declared cheerfully. "'Strange things happen.' She smiled at him a little whimsically. The mood had passed. "'Please invent something,' she begged, "'something that will bring in a great deal of money. I don't believe that you are a bit practical, though.' "'I wonder,' he murmured. "'It seems to me that I have changed in many ways lately.' "'There is one thing I do envy you,' she sighed. "'Your disposition.' "'In what respect?' "'You can look on all this luxury, all this easy living, and you never seem to feel a single pang. Yet I should think that you were better off once, weren't you?' "'A great deal,' he confessed. "'I don't know, though, that I was ever happier.' His hand had fallen upon hers. She made a little grimace. 
"'You're going to talk nonsense, I'm sure,' she exclaimed, smiling. "'I'm going to tell you that you are the dearest girl I ever met in my life, if that is nonsense.' Bliss slept soundly that night, and he had scarcely finished his frugal breakfast next morning before a note was brought up to him in France's handwriting. He tore it open and read— if you really want a place as chauffeur, I have just typed an advertisement for one from my employer here. I hate to think of your taking the place, but eleven shillings won't last long, will it? His name is Mr. Montague. The offices are at 17 Norfolk Street. Perhaps you had better call around and see him. Bliss made a careful toilet and presented himself at the address given a little before ten o'clock. In the outer office was a pert-looking boy. "'Mr. Montague is engaged with his secretary,' he announced. "'I expect he'll be busy for some time. What's your name and business?' Bliss wrote both on the back of a card and waited. The place was hung around with playbills and theatrical notices. From various announcements he gathered that Messrs. Montague and Flibbert were dramatic agents. They placed plays and sketches, and engaged artists for vaudeville, pantomime, or the drama. Bliss saw a good many familiar names there, and, somehow or other, conceived a dislike for Mr. Montague. Suddenly the door was opened. "'Step this way, young man,' the small boy directed. Bliss looked down at him for a moment, and then he sighed. "'Certainly, sir.' The office-boy glanced up at him suspiciously, but Bliss's face was immovable. "'I can't have all my appointments for the morning upset,' the small boy continued, in a peremptory manner. "'I have several important clients coming within the next half-hour. Whatever your business with Mr. Montague is, just rush it. There's a good fellow. This way.' He threw open the door and retreated. Bliss found himself in the presence of his prospective employer, and noted with some disapproval that Francis was seated by the side of his desk with an open notebook in her hand. Mr. Montague conformed to type. He was fresh-coloured, with black hair and eyebrows, and unmistakably Semitic. He was dressed with great splendour and amazing accuracy of detail. "'So, this is the young man, eh?' he observed affably when Bliss entered. Francis looked up and nodded to Bliss in friendly fashion. "'Mr. Bliss is the friend of whom I spoke to you,' she asserted, a little stiffly. Mr. Montague smiled, and somehow seemed to show all his white teeth. "'A recommendation from Miss Clayton goes a long way, a, a very long way indeed,' he declared. "'Still, there are other things. You think you can drive a car properly, young man?' "'I have been in the habit of driving one,' Bliss replied. Mr. Montague composed himself in his chair. "'To my mind,' he pronounced, "'the chief enjoyment about motoring is to go the greatest number of miles at the smallest cost.' I shall engage you on trial, Bliss, because of Miss Clayton's recommendation. You'll find me a good master, and your wages will be liberal. I shall give you two pounds a week. But remember this, 
I expect your account's kept down to a halfpenny. I know exactly what it should cost to run a hundred miles, and it is always interesting to me to try to do it a little cheaper. Here is my card, he went on, scribbling on the back. Go to Elliman's Garage on Ensdale Street. Look over my car and have it round here at one o'clock. I shall not order you any livery at present until I see whether you suit. That's all right, eh, Miss Clayton? She smiled at Bliss and rose to her feet. Mr. Montague, however, detained her. That will do now, young man, he said to Bliss. You can occupy your spare time until one o'clock by a little polishing. I like everything about the car to shine. He flicked a speck of dust from his patent boots with the corner of his silk handkerchief. Don't leave, Miss Clayton, he added. I have another letter for you yet, and Bliss, just remember, will you, that I am an exceedingly punctual person. I like every one about me to be on time. Better have your dinner before you bring the car round. You will take me out to luncheon and wait for me. One o'clock sharp, remember. End of chapter sixteen. Chapter seventeen. Bliss entered upon his new job and hated it. He was furthermore afflicted by an entirely new sensation. Mr. Montague, a little surfeited perhaps by the flamboyant charms of the multitude of his lady friends, was obviously disposed to admire his typist, and seemed quite unable to comprehend her avoidance of him. On one of his evenings off, Bliss talked to Francis seriously. "'Look here. You know,' he said, when I came in this morning for orders, that chap was trying to hold your hand. She frowned. "'Girls who have to earn their own living,' she remarked bitterly, "'get used to that sort of thing. We can see when it's coming. It's generally easy enough to deal with.' She sighed, and Bliss's expression became more and more forbidding. "'Fellow's making a nuisance of himself. I'm sure of it,' he muttered. "'He is persistent,' Francis admitted, with a little gesture, half of amusement and half of despair. "'All my usual methods for keeping such a person in his place uh, seem wasted upon him. He has the skin of a rhinoceros.' "'That's the reason those sort of chaps make money,' Bliss declared. "'I'll tell you what, Francis, we shall have to chuck it.' "'That's all very well.' she protested, but there are a dozen girls applying for every post in the city where one can earn enough to live on, and remember, you weren't finding it too easy to get a place yourself. "'Then I'll stay without one and starve,' Bliss retorted. "'But I'm not going to stick that fellow trying to make love to you under my nose. What was that about Brighton on Sunday?' "'Oh, he's asked me to go to Brighton every Sunday since I first came.' she replied evasively. "'Brighton, indeed,' Bliss grunted. "'You might start, but you'd never reach there if I was driving. What about a picture-palace?' She shook her head. "'You can't afford it. Neither can I. With your moderate salary and no money saved at all, you ought to put by at least half of it until you have something in the bank. We'll go and sit in the park.' They found a sheltered corner, for although it was now the end of May, the weather had changed again, and the wind was chilly. 
they looked out upon a little lake bordered with beds of hyacinths, sweet-smelling, but withered with the east wind. Before them was Park Lane. Bliss closed his eyes. For a moment he saw into the interior of that wonderfully incongruous medley of houses. A reminiscent wave of luxury set him longing. The seat was not very comfortable. They were neither of them very warm. There was nothing very interesting upon which to feast their eyes. Yet when that wave of memory carried him back to the old days, he felt suddenly content. There was something new here with him. He took Francis's hand and held it tightly. There were many people passing back and forth. A little way in the distance, excited men were shouting time-worn doctrines to wooden-faced groups of auditors. There were many others in similar circumstances to themselves—servants and their young men, shop-girls and their beaux—a world which, a few months ago, Bliss would have regarded without interest, almost with contempt. He looked at his companion's worn clothes and tired face. He thought for a moment of those theatrical young ladies of his acquaintance whom he had honoured with his attentions, and the contrast was almost ludicrous. Yet he admitted to himself with immense satisfaction that the answering pressure of her fingers upon his stirred a feeling in him which he had never before experienced, a feeling sweeter, more wonderful than anything he had ever known. "'It's an odd world,' he said abruptly. "'It's a cruel one,' she replied. "'Why? Everything's so hopeless,' she sighed. "'I came to London hoping to do something for my sisters, but I can't, you know.' "'Tell me about them,' he begged. "'I've never heard you talk of them. What are their names?' Her eyes were very soft. "'I can't talk about them very much,' she said. It all seems so sad. When my mother died, there was about a pound a week between the three of us. Ruth, she's the youngest, has a really wonderful voice, but we can't afford to have it trained. If only she could go to Dresden for one year. But there, it's no use talking about that. She earns a little singing at concerts and giving lessons. Elsie is delicate and can't do anything. We tried living together for a little time, but there was so little I could do down there that I left them to do the best I could with the little money there was. I wanted to do so much for them. I can't save money, though. It's impossible. Sometimes I think I was a fool to have left Mr. Masters. Don't you believe it, he asserted cheerfully. Very decent sort of chap, but no husband for you. She laughed bitterly. Perhaps you'd like to point out the sort of husband I might indulge in. Me, he said boldly. Anyway, I'm the only one you ever will have. She was silent then. For a moment, perhaps, the wind seemed to have lost its chilly touch, the perfume of the flowers to have become stronger. The hubbub of the distant streets had softened into music. There was the faintest smile upon her sad lips. "'What an optimist!' she murmured. "'Not a bit of it,' he protested firmly. 
Before this time next year we shall be married, and doing all sorts of things for your sisters. "'Cooking-stoves or chauffeuring?' she asked. "'You wait!' She shrugged her shoulders, and smiled at him a little wearily. "'Yes,' she sighed, "'I suppose I shall wait, like the rest of my foolish sex. Wait and see life go by me.' As they said good-bye later on that evening, Francis broke a silence which had lasted a long time. "'Mr. Bliss,' she began. "'Ernest,' he corrected her. "'Well, Ernest, then. I have promised to go motoring with Mr. Montague next Sunday.' He said nothing for a moment. "'I'm not going to Brighton,' she continued. "'I hate having to go anywhere. If I refuse altogether, however, I know quite well what will happen. I shall lose my place. I don't want to lose it. I said that I would start after luncheon and go into the country for tea. "'Very well,' Bliss groaned. "'I shall be there to look after you anyway. And Mr. Montague,' he added belligerently, "'had better not try any tricks.'" End of chapter 17 Chapter 18 At half-past two on the following Sunday afternoon, Bliss, according to orders, picked up Mr. Montague at Prince's Restaurant. Mr. Montague, having escaped with difficulty from the reproaches of the two ladies with whom he appeared to have been lunching, settled himself in the corner of the car. He had a large cigar in the corner of his mouth, a tissue-paper parcel in his hand, and a smile of anticipation which Bliss hated upon his face. "'Drive,' he directed, to the corner of Wellington Street and the Strand. They found Francis waiting there. As they drove off again, Bliss heard Mr. Montague's somewhat shocked remonstrances. "'But, my dear girl, have you no better clothes than these, the clothes you come to the office in every day?' "'I'm sorry, but just at present I haven't,' Francis confessed. "'You see, I was out of a post for a little while.' "'If you think I am not smart enough to go out with you—' "'Hush, hush!' Mr. Montague interrupted. "'Not a word of that, my dear. Only we must see. Something must be done about it. A nice tailor gown, eh? Something of that sort. Meanwhile, some flowers.' He unwrapped the parcel he was carrying, and disclosed a vision of wired roses and maidenhair fern. Then he drew down the front of the glass— and Bliss heard no more. The car was a four-cylinder Napier, fairly old, but as a rule trustworthy. Nevertheless, when they were forty or fifty miles from London, Bliss began to have difficulty. Four times he made readjustments before he hit upon the real trouble—a defect in the wiring. They were then at a small inn in the heart of the New Forest, and it was past seven o'clock. Just as he had at last set things to rights, Mr. Montague came strolling out from the bar with a freshly lit cigarette in his mouth. "'How are things looking now, Bliss?' he inquired. "'The trouble is over, sir,' Bliss assured him. "'I have just found out a defect in the wiring and repaired it. She'll go like anything now. Get you back to town in a couple of hours.' 
Mr. Montague did not seem as elated as he should have been. He glanced around and drew Bliss a little way out into the deserted street. "'Look here, young man, do you want to earn a sovereign?' Bliss's face expressed, or was meant to express, immense rapture. "'A sovereign, an unheard-of sum!' Mr. Montague nodded. "'It's a very large present.' he continued with a sigh, and very easily earned. I want you not to be able to start the car again. Bliss looked for a moment as he felt, puzzled. Mr. Montague solemnly winked at him. The nearest station, he explained, dropping his voice into a hoarse whisper, is three miles away, and the last train goes in half an hour. There isn't a car to be hired in the village. Go on with your work, or seem to be going on with it for another hour. Then come in and tell me that you're very sorry you can't start off again without a spare part, which you'll have to wire to London for. Then Bliss understood. He looked away from Mr. Montague onto the ground. He was shivering just a little fighting hard for self-control. Mr. Montague drew a gold coin from his sovereign purse. "'It's the easiest earned money,' he went on, "'you were ever offered. Just attend carefully to what I say. In about an hour, come in and knock at the door of the sitting-room and bring your report. Meanwhile I shall go and order some dinner here, in case,' he added with a portentous wink. We should find ourselves unable to start. He departed, and Bliss sat down to cool for a few minutes. Then, while Mr. Montague was engaged on the other side with the landlady, he slipped into the sitting-room. Francis, he said firmly, come out at once. There was a new ring in his tone, and she obeyed without questioning. She even, at his bidding, climbed up into the car by his side. He started the engine and sprang to his place. They were gliding out of the yard before Mr. Montague caught sight of them. He came tearing out, his coat-tails flying behind him. "'Hi!' he spluttered. "'Hello! What are you doing, Bliss? Bring back that car, you young blackguard! Do you hear?' Bliss looked over his shoulder. "'You stay there and eat your dinner,' he shouted or, if you run, you may catch the last train from Woodford." An incoherent stream of language only reached them in snatches. They had turned into the London road now. Francis began to get frightened. "'Ernest!' she exclaimed. "'What is it? Do you know what you're doing?' "'Quite well,' he answered. "'There are no trains away from here, and the brute offered me a sovereign to hang up the car for the night. Serves me right for letting you come down with such a beast." She drew a little breath. She was paler even than ever. Then her head drooped forward. He held the wheel with his right hand, and passed his left arm around her waist. "'Little lady,' he begged, "'cheer up. Life isn't going to stop for us altogether, even if we have to look for new posts. You came out for a motor-ride and some fresh air. Let's enjoy it.' The ring of his voice was inspiring. 
something of her old bravery came back to her. She laughed and settled herself down comfortably. "'I wonder,' she murmured, "'whether Mr. Montague will enjoy his dinner.' They sped on through the pearly twilight and through the soft darkness, until the glow in the sky and the great carpet of twinkling lights warned them that they were nearing London. He withdrew his arm then, and slackened speed a little. She shivered. "'Silly girl,' he whispered. "'What is there about London to terrify you?' "'I don't know,' she answered. "'And yet it does terrify me. It's so hard and cruel and stony. It seems all the time to be crying out for more victims, to be grudgingly doling out our daily bread with one hand, and holding up all the joy of life just out of our reach with the other. Then, Bliss declared confidently, we must learn to climb. They drove to the garage, where Bliss left a brief note for Mr. Montague, and enclosed the sovereign. Then they turned out into the street. I had my week's wages in my pocket, Bliss announced, an immense confidence and an unconquerable appetite. Let me have my own way for once. We have just time for dinner and a bottle of Medoc." She laughed half happily, half in desperation. They turned towards Drury Lane. End of chapter 18